Section 10 of The Railway Builders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Railway Builders, a Chronicle of Overland Highways by Oscar D. Skelton. Chapter 8 Building the Canadian Pacific, Part 2. Looking back now, after the lapse of thirty years, it would seem that the government would have done better if it had given less of the land which was to prove so valuable, and had instead guaranteed the dividend on the stock for a term of years. In the eighties, however, western acres were held in little esteem, and money guarantees, with the grand trunk memories fresh, looked dangerous, and it was in the eighties that the decision had to be made. More valid was the criticism of the remaining terms. The exemption from duties was wise, if inconsistent of a protectionist government, and the exemption from regulation of rates until ten per cent was earned had a precedent in a clause in the General Railway Act, not repealed until 1888, exempting all roads from such regulation until fifteen per cent on the capital invested had been earned. The exemption from taxation, however, was an unwarranted privilege, throwing undue burdens on homesteading settlers, and the interpretation afterwards given, that the exemption on lands extended until twenty years after the patent had been issued, still further increased the difficulty. Objectionable also was the monopoly clause, barring United States connections for ten years, it was claimed that this exemption was essential if traffic was to be secured for the Lake Superior link, and essential also if capital was to be secured from England. The Englishman, one of the heads of the road, declared, hated a monopoly at home as he hated the devil, but he looked with favor on monopolies abroad. The monopoly clause, as will be seen later, for a time did more to split East and West than the Lake Superior link did to bind them together in spirit but enough of discussion. Action came quick. Not a day was lost in organizing and beginning work. George Stephen was chosen president, and held the post until 1888. To him, more than to any other man, the ultimate success of the Canadian Pacific was due. Indomitable persistence, unquenchable faith, unyielding honor stamped his character. He was one of the greatest of empire-builders, he never despaired in the tightest corner, and never rested while a single expedient remained untried. Duncan McIntyre became one of the two vice-presidents, and took an active part in the company's affairs until he dropped out in 1884. Richard B. Angus came back from St. Paul to become vice-president and a member of the executive committee. His long banking experience, and his shrewd straightforward judgment, proved a tower of strength in days of trial. Donald A. Smith, while after 1883 a director and a member of the executive committee, took little part in the railway's affairs, though at Stevens' urging he more than once joined in going security when help was most needed. James J. Hill left the directorate and unloaded his stock at the close of 1882, because the company refused to accept his advice to omit the Lake Superior section and because of the growing divergence of interests between the St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Manitoba, and the Canadian Pacific. With him retired John S. Kennedy. 
the baron de reinach also withdrew at an early stage the english directors representing morton rose and company of london retired as soon as the road was completed being replaced by representatives of morton bliss and company of new york e b osler came in with the ontario and quebec in eighteen eighty four the board became more and more distinctively canadian one of the first steps taken by the directors was to open offices in winnipeg and put two men with united states experience in charge a b stickney later president of the chicago great western as general superintendent and general rosser as chief engineer the rate of progress was not satisfactory and early in eighteen eighty two a fortunate change was made william c van horn at that time general superintendent of the chicago milwaukee and st paul and still under forty was appointed general manager with wide powers some years earlier when he was president of the southern minnesota the leading members of the st paul syndicate had had an opportunity of learning his skill he had been in railroading since fourteen beginning as a telegraph operator on the illinois central and had risen rapidly in the service of one middle west road after another his tireless driving force was precisely the asset the company now most needed the first task was to find the money necessary to build the nineteen hundred miles remaining of the main line to build or acquire necessary branches and extensions and to provide equipment the government subsidies were the first resource the twenty five million dollars cash and the twenty five million acre land grant were to be paid as construction advanced if the land grant were put on the market at once for sale to settlers it would bring relatively little in face of the competition of the free homesteading land in adjoining sections three expedients were devised to make it available as soon as possible an extensive campaign was begun to advertise the government free land and thus exhaust the supply along the railway line and at the same time provide producers of freight bonds based on the security of the land grant were issued to the amount of twenty five million dollars ten million dollars of this issue was sold in eighteen eighty one at ninety two and varying proportions of the remainder were used as pledge for the government loans or execution of the contract these bonds were redeemed and cancelled as the lands on which they were based were sold further the canada northwest land company was organized to buy five million acres for a long hold the company included several members of the syndicate as well as some english investors to whom land appealed more than railway stock it found itself unable to handle this amount and the purchase was reduced to two million two hundred thousand acres sales to other companies and to individuals brought the total amount received or due from land by the end of eighteen eighty five up to eleven million dollars next came the contributions of the members of the syndicate and other private investors the capital stock authorized was a hundred million dollars in eighteen eighty one the members of the syndicate subscribed five million dollars at par in may eighteen eighty two they allotted themselves ten million dollars at twenty five in december of the same year thirty million dollars was issued at fifty two and a half to a syndicate of new york bankers organized by w l scott this stock was eventually sold largely in holland and in england a final ten millions were pledged in new york and montreal for a loan of half that sum and later sold for about the amount of the loan 
All told, sixty-five millions of stock had been issued, and some thirty-one million dollars had been brought into the treasury. Then the flow ceased. The brief gleam of prosperity which had shone over North America after the gloom of the later seventies vanished. Never had railway building been carried on so vigorously in the United States as in the years 1881-83, to 83, and the reaction was correspondingly severe. The collapse of the boom which had accompanied the first operations in Manitoba, the failure of harvest after harvest, the fading away of settlers and speculators alike, robbed all but a persistent few of faith in the Canadian Northwest, and in the railway whose fortunes rose or fell with it. The way of the Canadian Pacific was made particularly hard by the maneuvers of rival companies. Some of the United States Pacific roads, awake to the seriousness of the competition threatened, attacked it in the New York market. The Grand Trunk, naturally alarmed by the incursion of the new road into its best-paying territory in the East, used all the power of its influential directors and its army of shareholders in England to bar the London market. The financial policy adopted by the Canadian Pacific was unique in the records of great railway enterprises on this continent. It was simply to rely entirely on stock issues, to endeavour to build the road without incurring any bonded debt. Not until the last year of construction, 1885, were bonds based upon the security of the road itself issued for sale. It was doubtless desirable, if possible, to avoid the reckless methods by which so many American roads had been hopelessly waterlogged by excessive bond issues. The memory of the St. Paul and Pacific's six million share capital, as against its twenty-eight million bonded indebtedness, was fresh in the minds of the members of the syndicate. By keeping fixed charges low, while earning power was still uncertain, they lessened the risk of having the road pass out of the stockholder's control into a receiver's hands. Yet, as bonds could have been sold more easily than stock, it increased the difficulty of finding the necessary capital. Even so, it came within an ace of succeeding. In pursuance of this policy, the management, faced with a hesitating market, decided upon a bold step. Late in 1883, acting in accordance with the advice of New York and London financiers, they decided to endeavour to make a market for the unissued stock, by giving assurance of a dividend for a term of years. They offered to deposit with the government as trustees a sum sufficient to provide for ten years a dividend of three per cent, on the sixty-five million dollar stock already issued, to be supplemented, if possible, by a further dividend out of the current revenues, and they arranged to make similar provision for the remaining thirty-five million dollars as it was sold. Over half the sixteen million dollars necessary to purchase this annuity was deposited with the government at once, and security given for the early payment of the balance. Only success could have justified such a locking up of the funds urgently needed for construction, and success did not come, though for a time it seemed probable. The sudden smash of the Northern Pacific, just completed by Villard, brought the stock down lower than before the Philip had been given. With sixteen millions locked up, or pledged, the company was in a worse state than before. Note. The payment to the government of $8,710,240 in advance of secured dividends 
has deprived the company for the moment of the means for continuous vigorous exertion in construction without enabling it to recoup itself by the sale of its stock as was confidently and reasonably expected letter of george stephen to the government january fifteenth eighteen eighty four speaking in parliament in eighteen eighty five edward blake declared that omitting the last ten millions issued the company had raised on stock $24,500,000, and counting the next two dividend payments they would have paid or provided for dividends $24,875,000. Already $7 million had been paid out in dividends, members of the syndicate receiving $3,610,000 on their $10 million investment. In other words, before the road was opened for traffic, every cent paid in by the shareholders would have been paid back or set aside for dividends leaving not a dollar for building the road End note. in this emergency stephen and smith and mcintyre pledged their st paul or other stock for loans in new york and montreal but still the gap was unfilled they turned to the government requesting a loan of twenty two million five hundred thousand dollars to be secured by a first charge on the main line in return they agreed to complete the road by may eighteen eighty six five years earlier than the contract required the request at first was scouted by sir john macdonald parliament would not consent and if parliament consented the country would revolt bankruptcy stared the company in the face when john henry pope came to the rescue he soon convinced Sir John that if the Canadian Pacific smashed, the Conservative Party would smash the day after, and the aid was promised. The Cabinet was won over, and Sir Charles Tupper, hastily summoned by cable from London, stormed it through caucus, and the loan was made. The funds thus secured were soon exhausted in rapid and costly construction in the Mountain and Lake Superior sections, the government's blanket mortgage on the road made it impossible to borrow elsewhere so after the riel episode to be noted later a new arrangement was made with the government by which the thirty-five million dollar stock unsold was cancelled and an equal amount of first mortgage bonds issued twenty millions of this issue and the unsold lands were substituted for the government's security and the remainder of the bonds sold at ninety-five this put the company once more in funds. The relief came none too soon. In one fateful day in July, when the final passing of the bill was being tensely awaited, the Canadian Pacific, which now borrows fifty millions any day before breakfast, was within three hours of bankruptcy for lack of a few hundred thousand dollars. But by March 1886 every cent of the company's obligations to the government was paid off, twenty millions in cash and the remainder in land at a dollar fifty an acre the men behind the canadian pacific proved themselves possessed of courage and determination such as will always win them honor at more than one critical stage they staked their all to keep the work going but the fact remains that the bulk of the resources utilized in the original building of the road were provided or advanced by the people of canada the Canadian Pacific is as truly a monument of public as of private faith. Meanwhile, the work of construction had been going ahead. Under William Van Horn's masterful methods, the leisurely pace of government construction quickened into the most rapid achievement on record. 
a time schedule carefully made out in advance was adhered to with remarkably little variation work was begun at the east end of the line from the point of junction with the canada central but at first energy was devoted chiefly to the portion crossing the plains important changes in route were made the main line had already been deflected to pass through winnipeg now a much more southerly line across the plains was adopted making for calgary rather than edmonton the new route was shorter by a hundred miles and more likely to prevent the construction of a rival road south of it later for many years after the palliser dawson hines reports of the late fifties it had been assumed that the tillable lands of the west lay in a fertile belt or rainbow roughly following the saskatchewan valley and curving round a big wedge of the american desert projecting north certainly the short withered russet-coloured grasslands of the border country looked forbidding beside the green herbage of the north saskatchewan but in eighteen seventy nine professor mccoon's investigations had shown that the southern lands had been belied by rumour and that only a very small section was hopelessly arid with this objection removed the only drawback to the southern route was the difficulty of finding as good a route through the mountains as the northerly yellowhead pass route afforded but on this the company decided to take its chances work on the plains was begun in may eighteen eighty one and by the end of the year a hundred and sixty-one miles had been completed this progress was counted too slow and under van horn's management a contract was made in eighteen eighty two with langdon and shepherd of st paul to complete the line to calgary later in the year a construction company was organized the north american railway contracting company to build all the uncompleted sections of the main line for thirty two million dollars cash and forty five million dollars common stock this was really a financing rather than a construction expedient and was abandoned within a year in this section the engineering difficulties were not serious but the pace of construction which was demanded and the fact that every stick of timber and every pound of food as well as every rail and spike had to be brought a great distance required remarkable organization three hundred subcontractors were employed on the portion of the line crossing the plains bridge gangs and track layers followed close on the graders heels in eighteen eighty two over two and a half miles of track a day were laid in the following year for weeks in succession the average ran three and a half miles a day and in one record-smashing three days twenty miles were covered by the end of this year the track was within four miles of the summit of the rockies the change of route across the plains had made it essential to pierce the rockies by a more southerly pass than the yellowhead the kicking horse or hector pass short but steep was finally chosen but here as at the yellowhead to cross the first range did not mean victory the towering selkirk range faced the pass as the caribou mountains flanked the rockies farther north until the rails reached the hills the engineers had found no way through them and had contemplated a long detour to the north following the winding columbia then major rogers the engineer whom james j hill had suggested to take charge of the location of the mountain section following up a hint of moberly an earlier explorer found a route steep but practicable across the selkirks 
following the Beaver River Valley and Bear Creek, and then through Rogers Pass into the valley of the Illicillowat, and so through Eagle Pass to the settled location at Kamloops. Both in the Kicking Horse and in the Rogers Pass, gradients of 116 feet to the mile were found necessary, but these difficult stretches were concentrated within one operating section of 120 miles, and could easily be overcome by the use of additional engines. Unique provision was made against the mountain avalanches by erecting diverting timbers near the summits, and building mile upon mile of snow sheds over which the avalanches passed harmless. As a result of these expedients, and of raising the roadbed across the prairies unusually high, the Canadian Pacific lost less time through snow blockades than the great railways of the eastern United States. It was not until 1884 that the wilderness north of Lake Superior was attacked in strong force. Nine thousand men were employed here alone. Rock and muskeg, hill and hollow, made this section more difficult to face than even the Fraser Canyon. In one muskeg area today, seven layers of Canadian Pacific rails are buried one below the other. The stretch along the shore of the lake was particularly difficult. The Laurentian rocks were the oldest known to geologists, and what was more to the purpose, the toughest known to engineers. A dynamite factory was built on the spot, and a road blasted through. One mile cost $700,000 to build, and several cost half a million. The time required and the total expenditure would have been prohibitive, had not the management decided to make extensive use of trestle work. It would have cost over two dollars a cubic yard to haul through the hills and fill up the hollows by team haul. It cost only one-tenth of that to build timber trestles, carrying the line high, and to fill up later by train haul. An unexpected test of the need of this section came before it was completed. Early in 1885 the government realized too late that serious trouble was brewing among the half-breeds and Indians of the Northwest. Unless troops could be sent in before the grass grew, Riel would have thousands of Indians on the warpath, and a long and bloody contest and a serious setback to the West would be inevitable. The railway was far from complete, with a hundred and twenty miles of gaps unfilled, and the government considered it impossible to get the troops there in time. But Van Horn, who had much experience in handling troops in the Civil War, did not have that word in his vocabulary and astonished the authorities by offering to take men from Kingston or Quebec to Capelle in ten days. Part of the gaps were bridged by temporary rails laid on ice and snow, only ninety miles being uncompleted by spring. In one stretch the men were marched across the ice to save a long detour. Through the rest they were carried, covered with furs and straw, in contractors' sleighs, along the tote roads from one camp to the next. In four days from leaving Kingston, the first troops landed at Winnipeg, and though the revolt was not prevented, it was speedily crushed. There was no longer any question about the value of the North Shore link, and the opposition to the Canadian Pacific fell from that hour. It was even suggested that the company should build a statue to Louis Riel. As for the government, it could well claim that its persistence in pushing through this part of the road nearly offset its red-tape carelessness in permitting the rebellion to come to a head. 
Meanwhile, the government section between Port Arthur, or rather Fort William, and Winnipeg, had been taken over by the company in 1883, though not entirely completed. Two years later, the thousands of Chinese navvies working on the difficult Kamloops to Port Moody section finished their task, and the government work was done. The only gap remaining lay in the Gold Range, and here, in the Eagle Pass, at Craigellachie, on November 7, 1885, the eastward and westward tracklayers met. It was only a year or so before that the Northern Pacific had celebrated the driving of the last golden spike by an excursion which cost the company a third of a million, and heralded the bankruptcy of the road. There was no banquet and no golden spike for the last rail in the Canadian Pacific. William Van Horn had announced that the last spike would be just as good an iron spike as any on the road, and had it not been that Donald A. Smith happened along in time to drive the spike home, it would have been hammered in by the navvy on the job. Six months later the first passenger train went through from Montreal to Vancouver. The longest railway in the world was open from coast to coast, five years before the end of the time required by the original contract. To realize how great a work had been accomplished requires today some effort of the imagination. The Canada the present generation knows is a united Canada, an optimistic self-confident Canada, with rapidly rounding out industries and occupations, which give scope for the most ambitious of her sons, as well as for tens of thousands from overseas. It is a Canada whose nine provinces stretch almost unbroken from ocean to ocean. But the Canada of a generation earlier was far other. On the map it covered half a continent, but in reality it stopped at the Great Lakes. There was little national spirit, little diversity of commercial enterprise. Hundreds of thousands of our best-born had been drawn by the greater attraction of the United States cities and farms until one-fourth of the whole Canadian people were living in the Republic. It was the opening up of the West that changed the whole face of Canadian life, that gave a basis for industrial expansion, that quickened national sentiment and created business optimism. And it was the building of the Canadian Pacific that opened up the West, and bound it fast to the distant East. Certainly not least among the makers of Canada were the men who undertook that doubtful enterprise, and carried it through every obstacle to success, and not least among the generations whose toil and faith have made possible the nation of today, were the four millions of the Canada of the eighties who flung a great railway across the vast unpeopled spaces of a continent to the far Pacific. End of section 10